I'm Holly Wayment, and this is Pediatrics Now. Today, we're talking about groundbreaking new research on antibiotics in babies. Joining me here in the podcast studio is Associate Professor of Pediatrics at UT Health San Antonio and University Hospital, J.B. Canty. He's one of the few in the country who is double-boarded in neonatology and infectious disease. He's also a contributing writer for Red Book. Dr. Canty, thank you so much for joining me here in the podcast studio today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I should also mention you have a master's in public health. I do. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> That's helping with everything that you're already doing, I would imagine. Uh, it's been really helpful. You know, I, I think most uh, pediatricians, you know, we, we're we're trained on the at the bedside and trained with one family, but having the MPH training has been nice to be able to zoom out to the county level or the state level or the country level and kind of get a sense of how policy is impacting care for lots of kids instead of just the patient right across from you. Tell me about your study and your research and how this is changing antibiotics for babies. Well, I, I always appreciate the chance to talk about it. I'll try to keep this within the limits of the podcast. So what we looked at in our study was whether or not we could use telehealth to support uh, nurses and doctors and pharmacists who practice at centers that may not have all the resources that a place like San Antonio does. So I'm spoiled rotten. I get to work with pharmacists and I get to work with infectious disease consultants and OBs and neonatologists and nurses in this ivory tower setting. But there are lots of providers who are taking care of newborns and their families in rural parts of the state, states that may not have the pediatric resources or the pharmaceutical resources or sometimes even the, the, the health department resources that I kind of take for granted here. So the program was aimed at taking eight centers, um, eight very brave centers in South Texas that volunteered to be in the study with us. And what we did is we measured their baseline use of antibiotics in newborns. So how many babies were getting antibiotics? Why were they getting them? Were they concerned about early infection? Were they concerned about things like syphilis? Uh, were they concerned about a maternal infection that they wanted to pro uh, prophylax the babies for? And once we had a sense of what every center's baseline use was, we did what's called a stepped wedge trial. We basically let each center step into the program one at a time. So over the course of about nine months, all these centers got the availability to have access to me 24-7 um, to, to answer questions about concerns for infection, concerns for antimicrobial use, antimicrobial stewardship, um, to see if that would impact prescribing. And the, the good news is it did. Uh, we were able to see centers' uh, rates of antibiotics drop, the number of babies who were getting antibiotics, and the amount of antibiotics that babies were getting if they did get it all went down. And obviously, we wanted to be very careful about making sure that this was done safely. So we measured things like how long the baby was in the hospital, whether or not the baby developed an infection, or if the baby or the mother had to be transferred to a, to a, a higher level of care center, meaning a more urban center, um, as a result of the infection. And we tracked all of those things. The total study from baseline to intervention to the follow-up period was about three years. And we saw significant reductions in antimicrobial use without any safety signals. So there was no increased risk for infection, no increased risk for transfer. We were able to keep more babies in their birth city 
with their family without having to put them in the ambulance or the helicopter and fly them to another to another center. So we was really proud of that. Um, I think it was generally well received by the providers who were calling. The calls were very, very interesting on a lot of different topics. Uh, that study happened at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. So we had a, a system in place to support these hospitals through COVID because they could call and get questions answered. Uh, as we learned the answers, we were all learning together there for a little while. And now that the study's complete and we, we, we think that the program was a big positive, we've actually been able to get some money from the uh, National Institute of Health to try to scale the program up. So those eight centers are still participating, but I've invited the other 70 centers in rural Texas to participate if they want to. So that's something we're working on right now. <laughs> wow. With my oldest child, who's now 18, it was 35 hours of labor. I had a fever. She had a fever. And so we both got antibiotics and... She's had some of the, you know, the things that you're at risk for when you have antibiotics that young of age, and, and she's doing great. But but basically, that wouldn't happen now. It, you wouldn't just automatically give antibiotics. You've you've changed that. And can you tell us about that? It, it would be significantly less likely. Yes, ma'am. And, and and I can't take full credit. The American Academy of Pediatrics. Um, let me restate that. <laughs> I shouldn't take too much credit at all. The American Academy of Pediatrics has been aware of this problem. They've been working hard, really, really smart investigators like Karen Popolo at, at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and her, her protege, Dustin Flannery, people like Rich Poland in New York, Bill Bennett's in Stanford, really, really smart people all across the country have been working in committees and working with policy to try to make us at least think about why we're using antimicrobials. The... the the intervention that has probably been the biggest change for the situation you're talking about has actually been something called the Kaiser sepsis calculator. And when I was an intern, <laughs> when I was an intern mm -hmm. uphill both ways in the snow, <laughs> when I was an intern, if a mother had that, that infection of the amniotic space, the uterus, what we call chorioamnionitis, it was do not pass go, do not collect $200. Automatically, that baby was going to get 48 hours of ampicillin and gentamicin, two different antimicrobials, because we just assumed that was the right thing to do. And what we learned uh, is that by using tools like the Kaiser sepsis calculator, we can actually plug in the information. How high was mom's fever? How long was her bag of water ruptured? Did she get antibiotics? And if so, when did she get them? How does the kid look after delivery? And actually estimate these babies' risk of infection. And that tool has allowed us to withhold antibiotics safely in a lot of circumstances. So yeah, 18 years ago, even five or six years ago, automatic. Um, nowadays, we'll, we'll put the information in, we'll examine the baby very closely, and many times we can safely do watchful waiting and make sure the baby continues to do okay. And a baby that young getting antibiotics could be at higher risk for eczema, obesity. We, we've learned a lot about this in the last decade. So certainly in the short term, getting antimicrobials when you don't have an infection, or even if you do, but certainly if you don't have an infection, is going to adversely impact all the healthy bacteria that we're born with. So when we're born, we get a lot of normal bacterial flora from our moms, from our dads, from being held, from breastfeeding, from being swaddled and cared for. And those bacteria, for the most part, are helpful. They're anti-inflammatory. They uh, help us digest our food. They help us 
processed vitamins that we need. And by killing them with antimicrobials, we raise the risk for inflammatory processes. And in the long term, what that tends to mean is if we kill all the anti-inflammatory bacteria on our skin, we may be at more risk for eczema. If we kill all the anti-inflammatory bacteria in our lungs, we may be at more risk for things like asthma. There's some evidence that if we kill the anti-inflammatory bacteria in our gut, we may be more at risk for things like obesity or type 1 diabetes. And I think we're just really scratching the surface of how bad early antibiotics are for our health long term. So whenever possible, if we can, if we can avoid them, we try to avoid them. And then at the same time as a practitioner, what if you miss it, though, and then the baby's in trouble because you didn't prescribe them. So there's that pressure too. A hundred percent. That's always been one of the big drivers that's been holding us back is clinicians appropriately are very intolerant of even one missed case because one anecdotal experience of a baby that you withheld antibiotics from and then has an infection and has a bad outcome will set us back years and years and years and years. And so as a result of that, the research has moved us forward relatively slowly. And if you're somebody like me who feels really strongly about this topic, sometimes painfully slowly, because we can't afford to miss anybody. When the Kaiser sepsis calculator was being validated out in Northern California and Oregon, that study was five years. It was over 200,000 babies. It was remarkably effective, remarkably safe. They reduced antibiotics by over 50% in those hundreds of thousands of babies. But there was one infant in that study that would have traditionally received antibiotics. Kaiser sepsis calculator said, okay, to do watchful waiting. The baby wound up having a bloodstream infection and actually did well, but that was many people's take home from that article when it first came out is, well, they did miss a kid. They missed one kid out of 200,000 and that was mm-hmm. all anybody heard. So it, it, it is, it's probably good uh, overall that we're being very deliberate and very careful with this research, but it does mean for some of us, it moves slower than we would like. <laughs> so what would be, what do you want the community pediatric practitioner to know the most, you know, with all of your knowledge, um, what advice do you have? Well, I think, I think there's two things I would, I would, I try to tell everybody when I get a chance to meet with them at their hospital or or at meetings, one of which is neonatal infectious disease is a niche. Um, And I, I spend all my time in this teeny tiny little area where neonatology and infectious disease overlap. So if you draw out the Venn diagram, you'd probably have to get a microscope to see the area that I'm supposed to be good at. (laughs) So one thing is it's okay not to know this stuff. Um, you know, pediatricians feel pretty comfortable with the things that are common, but sometimes things come up like congenital syphilis or congenital rubella or congenital tick bites. I had an infant a couple of months ago that uh, a center called me about because a tick had gotten in and bitten the baby on the, on the skin in the newborn nursery. Oh, These wow. are things that are once a year, once a decade, once a career. So it's okay not to always know the answer to those things. And I just want people to know that there's a resource available where instead of spending two hours and diving into the computer and doing a lot of research on your own, you can call and get help. Because I deal with some of that stuff way more frequently than any one provider would because my area is so specific and so narrow. Um, what did they do with the, the tick? <laughs> so there's, uh, there's, there's a couple of options. Uh, there is some research supporting a, a single dose of empiric antimicrobial therapy for tick bites. Most of that research has been done on adults, and the, and the antibiotic that we tend to use in that scenario is one called doxycycline, which is not the safest antibiotic in the world for young children or infants. So in that case, we did watchful waiting and, and kept a very close eye on the baby, and fortunately the baby did well. 
Um, The other thing that I would remind people of is that watchful waiting is an excellent strategy these days, and it's pretty widely available. If, If you have a baby that you think might have an infection, but they're looking well at the moment, watchful waiting is okay. But it's easier said than done, especially in lower in, in settings where you may only have one pediatric or family medicine provider, and that person has to do newborn nursery and clinic and go over to wards and also swing by and see a kid in the ER. It may be hard to check on a baby in the nursery every four hours or every six hours. So collaboration with your nurses, collaboration with expert, you know, with, with, with content experts who may not be at your center is totally okay. It is very, very hard for providers in lower resource settings to be the superheroes that we need them to be when they have so many different jobs to do. So I'm just trying to make sure that we've got resources available for people who are wearing five or six or seven hats in the course of a 24-hour period. And what about, though, the the patient in the community pediatric setting? Is, is it that watchful waiting, something like, call me if your child gets sicker, or what would you advise there? Yeah, there's so many different infections. I, I, I think that in general, going to see your, your your provider when you get sick, and then the provider and you working together to determine, is this, what is the natural history? What is the normal course of whatever you have? If you have group A strep throat, and you have all the symptoms, and the, and the, the throat swab is positive, the natural history of group A strep throat is it's going to get worse and worse and worse until you treat it. So that may not be one where you can do watchful waiting. We know that there's an increased risk for things like rheumatic fever if you let that go on too long. But if conversely, if it's an upper respiratory tract infection um, and the, the child's coughing and has a runny nose and has a low-grade fever, but you're, you're confident that it's a virus, well, the natural history of that is it should go away over the course of a week or 10 days. It should, you know, kind of get maybe a little bit worse and then turn around and get better. But if all of a sudden, five days later, that child suddenly gets much sicker, if all of a sudden the fever goes up and the child starts to cough and have trouble breathing, one of the other things that can happen is you can get a secondary bacterial infection of that cold. So you had a cold, it was getting better, and boom, now all of a sudden you've got bacterial pneumonia. So watchful waiting is fine, but you have to anticipate kind of, is this child going to continue to get better? Or if not, what are the things we're looking out for? So parents, caregivers, providers who are engaged with each other, who are communicating with each other and recognize when things change suddenly that that child might need reevaluation is an important component of watchful waiting. Watchful waiting can't just be a, um, a snapshot at one time point and you wash your hands and you're all done. It's got to be watch the the watching part is very important you've got to continue to watch that child's uh, disease evolve to make sure that it's heading for the finish line and not taking a left turn out of nowhere and if you're not sure so don't prescribe the antibiotics just to be safe i think in general we we've tried really hard to reduce antibiotic exposure whenever it's safe to do so and and there are some very clear-cut examples group a strep throat always needs antibiotics Uncomplicated URI never needs antibiotics. But then there's a large gray zone in the middle, things like sinusitis. Um, otitis thi- media. Otitis media, exactly. Always or sometimes? O- or? Otitis media, if they're sick or if they're very, very young, we're more likely to treat otitis media in an older kid who's generally healthy, watchful waiting is totally appropriate. But again, if things resolve, great. If things deteriorate or the eardrum perforates or heaven forbid the bacteria spreads to another part of the head and neck, then that may need treatment. So there's a large gray zone in the middle where it's very, very difficult at the public health level 
to say, well, 68% of all sinusitises in this county got treated with antibiotics. That's good or bad. It's hard to know because you've really got to drill down to each individual case. So most of the research at that level is focused on absolutely yes cases or absolutely no cases. But the, the bulk of clinical care actually happens in the middle, and it's hard. <laughs> it seems really hard. And to kind of change that way of thinking, like I know like my parents, for example, like if, if if they get antibiotics, it's like, now I'm getting better, like for so many things. And it's kind of, that was the mindset, mm -hmm. but we need to, like overall, are you saying we need to be more mindful about it? I think we just need to be very deliberate. If we're going to, gone are the days where someone comes in and you're worried about infection and you say, well, the antibiotics are benign, better safe than sorry, let's go ahead and treat them. We know now that's not true. We know there is a cost to antimicrobials. And even if it's something as mild as having to go to the pharmacy, having to give a child who's not feeling well a medicine two or three times a day, and they get diarrhea, that's kind of the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is you're increasing their risk for bad outcomes down the road. You're increasing their risk for asthma, eczema, drug allergies, resistant bacteria that have been trained by early antibiotic exposure to fight the antibiotics and come back and cause worse problems down the road. So generally everyone's operating in a space where they're trying to do the best thing for the child and the best thing for the family. We just need to remember and be deliberate about automatic antibiotics reflexively are not always the best thing for the child. And as would you say overall antibiotics are still way overprescribed? Yes. Um, and and it's, it's easy for me to say, because again, I'm not always the one on the front lines, although I, I certainly have my fair share of primary care patients in, in, the, in the neonatal intensive care unit. Um, but on average, if you knew the truth in the universe about what absolutely needed to be treated, that number is lower than our current antimicrobial prescribing. But it's how to chip away at the excessive use safely. Because the last thing we want to do is withhold antibiotics from someone who needed them. That child has a bad outcome, and now the whole field has been set back a year or two years or five years because everyone remembers that one case. <laughs> so if a pediatric clinician provider has a question, you want them to contact you and you have a new way to do that. I think, I mean, I think that, yes, I think if you're treating a, a, a newborn or a young infant in the state of Texas, I would love for people to call me. My, my program is based around volume. I'm trying to show um, the state and we're trying to show the NIH that this is a scalable project. Um, for telehealth, for the newborn nursery specifically, these calls are not long. You know, most of my calls are two minutes, three minutes. They happen in the middle of the day, um, and they save the pediatrician or the family medicine doc a lot of time. And so that part is very doable. In the setting of the office where someone may see 30 or 35 or 40 patients a day, um, it can be challenging to kind of find this information quickly and turn it around for the family. But, uh, but there are resources available, and I, I hope to be one of them. So we'll put that website in the text for this podcast, and it'll have the name of your clinic on there, Okapi, mm -hmm. at University Hospital. Tell us about your clinic. The Okapi Clinic, or the Okapi Program, depending on which version of it, is uh, ongoing care of congenital and perinatal infections. Um, the, Okapi is <laughs> the Okapi is a relatively unique animal. It's a, it's, a, it, it's a giraffe family member that looks like a zebra, so <laughs> I, 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 people joke that I'm 
two different specialties kind of smushed together. And here's an animal that's two things smushed together. It also <laughs> happens to be one of my niece's favorite animals. So it's the, it's the mascot of our clinic. Nice. Um, but the, the Okapi clinic is aimed at babies with either congenital, meaning infections they acquired when they were still in the womb or perinatal infections they acquired at the time of delivery or shortly thereafter. So the Okapi clinic here at university hospital, we see congenital syphilis. We see congenital CMV cytomegalovirus infection hepatitis B, hepatitis C, Chagas disease, which is becoming increasingly common in South Texas, uh, congenital Chagas disease, um, toxoplasmosis, things like that. Um, the Okapi program intends to do those same things, the same patient population, the same conditions, but virtually. So people who are in Eagle Pass or Carrizo Springs or Laredo or Fredericksburg can pick up the phone and give us a call. And rather than shipping the mom or shipping the baby to another center, they can get care coordination over the phone. And JB, what inspired you to do this? Well, full disclosure, uh, I have to give my wife credit. This was part of her idea originally. The Texas is a really big state, and I'm not a native Texan. Uh, I hope everyone didn't just click off the podcast right there. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a South Carolinian originally, and, and the state of South Carolina is about 22,000 square miles. The area of Texas where UT San Antonio operates in, that sort of tex that triangle from Big Bend National Park down to Laredo, down to Brownsville, back up to San Antonio, that triangle is about 22,000 square miles. So the area that UT helps care for is the same size as my home state. My home state has a lot of academic programs covering that same area. So we're talking about a lot of square miles, a lot of hospitals. A lot of those hospitals are what we call critical access hospitals, where that might be the only hospital for 100 miles, 200 miles. Mm. Um, and so to help people who live in those communities, to help providers who work in those communities have access to all the things that I have access to just by benefit of working in San Antonio was the original inspiration. Wow. The other, the other issue is it's expensive. Um, you know, a, a baby who, and I saw a lot of this when I, when I first came to San Antonio, a baby who has congenital syphilis who gets transferred by ambulance from a, a hospital near the Texas-Mexico border to San Antonio and then stays for 10 days, that whole thing might cost $70,000, $90,000 to the state. And come to find out that if that baby, if I had been called about that baby and was able to look over the labs with the provider, that baby may have just needed a single intramuscular shot of penicillin and could have stayed at the birth hospital. Well, a single intramuscular shot of penicillin costs about $100. So it's a, it's a massive cost benefit to maybe preventing unnecessary transfers. And if we can save that money there, we can spend it somewhere else where it's going to be more effective to improve healthcare outcomes. Well, I think it's so incredible that you're devoting your career, your life to helping these babies who had no choice but to be born yeah. with terrible diseases. I, I think if you, if, you, if you pin down pediatricians and you ask them why they do it, I think most people will eventually get to some version of it's not the child's fault. You know, kids are pretty blameless. Um, as someone who has uh, three, you know, pre-teenagers, they're not always blameless, but generally, <laughs> generally speaking, they're... I know what you mean. <laughs> and and, and newborn, newborns are the extreme version of that. Like, literally all they did was get born. So uh, to, to, to have a chance to intervene on that patient population and keep families together, prevent transfers, improve outcomes is, is, is pretty meaningful. So I'm, I'm happy that I get a chance to do it. It's wonderful. Do you, do you have a quote you want to mention that's a favorite quote or something that pertains to what we're talking about? 
Yeah. Well, <laughs> we love quotes here on, on pediatrics now. I, I love my movies. I tend to drop a lot of movie quotes and I can always tell if my, if my learners have watched that movie or not, but in the, in the third installment, it used to be the last installment, but now there's been so many in the third installment of Indiana Jones. Um, uh, Sean Connery plays Indiana Jones's dad. And without getting into spoilers, the, 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 the MacGuffin that they're after, the Holy Grail that they're after is hidden in this complex system of traps and riddles. And Sean Connery has spent his whole life researching this very little niche thing. And he has written everything down in his diary. And now he has lost his diary. And Indiana Jones is, he goes, you don't remember? And Sean Connery goes, I wrote it down so I wouldn't have to remember. (laughs) And that's what I feel about for this complaint. Like some of the, like congenital chagas, neonatal herpes, congenital tick infections, uh, congenital malaria, right? Maybe once a year for a, for a provider who, who takes care of a population. These are things that providers don't have to deal with every day. There's no reason they should be dedicating neurons to remembering these things when they've got a million other things to keep track of. So sometimes people are like, oh, I'm embarrassed to ask this. I'm like, don't be embarrassed. Like I do this all the time and I still have to write it down <laughs> because mm-hmm. congenital syphilis is complicated. Con- the, the approach to hepatitis B exposed babies is complicated. So I, I, I hope people realize that I appreciate it when they call and I'm happy to help. But I, this is not something that anyone needs to have memorized. <laughs> so again, the bottom line to contact you through this website where you will get the message and you'll be able to contact them Yeah, back. hopefully it's instantaneous. There's no protected health information transferred. There's no, you know, there's no cost. It's free. This, the, the NIH is paying for it. Um, and my hope is that we can show at the end of the five-year study that we are continuing to be cost-saving. We're continuing to help improve outcomes and maybe we can get some funding to keep it going full-time. I, I, I largely equate it to poison control. Uh, that's, my, that's my mission is have a number you can call at any time, get some help on toxicology where, you know, I don't know toxicology off the top of my head, but I know there's people who do, and I'm always happy to call them when it comes up. I want to be that for neonatal infections. That sounds incredible. And it's a UT Health San Antonio website. And again, we'll put that right. in the text. That's right. We also like to, on Pediatrics Now, promote having a life outside of medicine, how that helps us all. What Tell me what you like to do in your spare time. Oh my gosh! So uh, I am very. In, in case my boss, Dr. Cynthia Blanco, is listening, I am. I am very fortunate to have a very flexible job. Um, I do patient care. I do my research, uh, which tends to be, um, you know, have laptop, will travel. I can, I'm able to do my research at home or at school or sitting in the car waiting on my kids to get out of school. Um, so I, I have the opportunity to do a lot of things in San Antonio. I love San Antonio. My, my, my wife trained here. I went to medical school here and we have a lot of friends and family in the area. Um, Oh gosh, where to begin? I love soccer. <laughs> um, watching it or playing it? Watching it and playing it. Uh, I'm getting to the age where playing it's increasingly dangerous, but my, <laughs> my, my kids play. Uh, I'm about to get certified as a referee, so maybe get to ref some games. Wow. Um, love watching. Uh, the state park system in Texas is wonderful. Uh, so the, the number of state parks within 30 minutes, 60 minutes of San Antonio is absolutely incredible. So, you know, going to Garner, uh, out by Uvalde, going to Lost Maples, going mm-hmm. to Inks Lake. Um, going in a couple of weeks to Lost Maple- oh, Maples. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. Got to reserve ahead of time. Good good time of year to go. Yeah. <laughs> um, love the food. San Antonio has tremendous food. It's one of the few UNESCO World Heritage Sites for food in America. Albuquerque, New Mexico is one of the other ones. Uh, you could probably eat at a different restaurant all the way through your training in San Antonio and never, never touch on the same place twice. Um, 
I uh, love video games. That's not really getting out of the house, but um, <laughs> I enjoy playing video games and playing with my kids. a favorite one? Right now, I'm spending way too much time on Baldur's Gate 3, uh, which anyone who who is, is into video games will probably recognize right now, but I uh, love science fiction and fantasy books, science fiction and fantasy games, things like that. So. Awesome. And does that help you to recharge when all, all of these complex problems you're dealing with and babies who are really, really sick, that must get hard to deal with. I think it's, I think it's good for the soul, no matter what you do for a living to go do something else and recharge. Um, even if we, you know, I, I would, I think most of us would say we love what we do and we wouldn't, don't really see ourselves doing anything else, but especially in, for neonatal intensive care, it can be hard at times. You know, sometimes the outcome isn't what we want it to be and the ability to talk with people who get it and then go do an activity that refreshes your soul, I think is a must. Uh, whether you're you know, school teacher or a police officer or a orthopedic surgeon, I think the ability to recharge is critical. Um, I'm very fortunate to have a family that likes to do, you know, we all like to kind of do the same things. And, um, and I have a, you know, a partner who's also medical, so she understands my stories and I understand hers. And I think that's been really helpful, but, um, is she an infectious disease? Doctor? She's a pediatrician. Uh, okay. She's actually uh, MD, MBA. So she is a pediatrician who specializes in kind of system level care, quality of care, using leveraging systems and the money within systems to improve care for large populations. She's pretty, she's actually much smarter than me. So I'm, um, <laughs> I, I'm the, uh, I'm, well, it's, it's, she's a, she's, she's great to work with because she gets it. So can you tell me, um, is there one like, one parting piece of advice for the pediatric practitioner on when, regarding antibiotics in general. I, I think it's kind of a story. I, I have always described our approach to antibiotics in babies, especially preterm babies, but term babies as well. Uh, I call it the Spartacus problem. Patent pending, copyright. Um, <laughs> I'm a huge cinemaphile. There's a Spartacus is a great movie. For those of you who haven't seen it, immediately pause this podca- podcast and go watch Spartacus with Kirk Douglas. Okay, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and there's a scene, t- uh, sort of a spoiler, there's a scene towards the end of the movie where the Romans are chasing Spartacus. Spartacus has led the slave rebellion in ancient Rome. He's got a very loyal army. And the Romans catch up with the army, and they're going to hang Spartacus. They're going to crucify Spartacus because they're Romans. They have no idea what he looks like. And so there's this iconic scene where the Romans say, give us Spartacus and the rest of you can go free. And one of his lieutenants stands up and says, I am Spartacus. And one of his other lieutenants stands up and goes, I'm Spartacus. And then the whole army stands up and I'm Spartacus, I'm Spartacus. And Kirk Douglas gets up and goes, no, I'm Spartacus. But at that point, everyone's standing up and everyone's yelling. And Mm -hmm. so the Romans crucify everyone. And that is very much how we have practiced infectious disease in neonatology for a long time when in doubt treat them all you know and let and let the fate sort it out like let's treat everyone better safe than sorry if anyone suspected suspected of having an infection they all get ampicillin and gentamicin they all get treated and we're learning now that we need to be a little bit more conscientious about who's getting therapy and who's not so i would just i guess restate that using antibiotics is totally appropriate. Antimicrobial stewards, we're not trying to get everyone to stop using therapy. We're not trying to get to zero. 
we want people to use antibiotics for the right reasons and the right circumstances. So I, we, I always joke, we're not the antibiotic police, we're the antibiotic sommeliers. We're trying to pair the right antibiotic with the right clinical situation um, so that they can, we can get the most use out of these drugs at a minimum amount of side effects and cost. So um, people should continue to use antibiotics, they should continue to think about infections, but they should be conscientious about if they're gonna start them and why they're gonna start them. And if there's a website you'd recommend to brush up on any new information, I can put that into the chat as sure. well. Uh, well, um, uh, at the risk of sounding too self-promoting, we're going to try really hard to keep updated resources on our website, the Kaiser Sepsis Calculator, uh, informational lectures, updated statements from CDC or the American Academy of Pediatrics or AAFP, the Family Medicine uh, Organization. We'll try to have those on the website so it can sort of be one-stop shopping for the busy provider. And as we all know, the busy provider has drug reps coming into their clinic with lots of information. So, but it, do you recommend constantly educating yourself in other other ways or any advice there? Anything you want to say? Well, I think, like I said, it's what you do outside of medicine. I think all of us, you know, we try to stay current. We have our CME that we chase down. We have our, uh, for those of you who are pediatricians and I'm sure for those of you who are in other specialties, there's something similar. I have to keep my ongoing maintenance of certification. <laughs> so we, we, we try hard. I think some people read, some people pull out a journal, some people go to meetings. I think anything is fine. Whatever works for you is great. Um, hopefully my website can be one of those, but um, any, anything you can do to stay current is much appreciated. I think we think we know a lot. And there's been, there's been a couple of studies that have been fairly well done where we've actually, people have actually interviewed families and said, hey, you know, did you ask for an antibiotic? And if so, why? And did you get it or not? And if you didn't get it, how did that make you feel? I think, I think sometimes we assume that parents always want the therapy. And I think that's increasingly not true this day and age as, as, as people, medical or non-medical, are, are more aware of the dangers, of the potential side effects of antimicrobials. Um, but we don't know always what's driving that decision. And I would argue that most of the time what's driving decisions for families is what's best for their kid. And so for, for providers who are, have the time, which is always the challenge, for providers that have the time, if they're getting a lot of pushback from a family about, I want an antibiotic, but the provider doesn't think it's one's indicated, if you have time to talk about why and, and help the family know where you're coming from, that goes a long way. The problem is the way the business of pediatrics is these days, you may not have 15 or 20 or 30 minutes to convince this family. And it is a business. So if you're routinely telling families no when, when that's the medically right answer, mm -hmm. but the family wants a yes, they'll take their business elsewhere. And if they're going to go to somewhere else who's a little bit more liberal with their antimicrobials, then that's going to shift the whole field towards less stewardship, more antimicrobials. So I'm very sympathetic to families. I think families just want what's best for their kid. I'm sympathetic to the pediatricians who are trying to do what's best, but maybe don't have time to always explain why it's best. So I think the more education we can do up front, the more public health education, the more billboards, the more we teach it in high school and college that antimicrobials are essentially chemotherapeutic agents. They are indiscriminate cellular killing medicines. They kill bacteria and they don't care if it's bad bacteria or your good healthy bacteria, they're going to kill it all. Like, and, and I think the more families understand that, the more receptive they'll be to, oh, my pediatrician thinks maybe it's just a virus. We're going to keep an eye on it together. And if it's not better by Friday, I'm going back as opposed to, yeah, I got my prescription. Thanks doc. You know, and off to Walgreens. So 
And when we say antimicrobials, that's antibiotics. Sorry, yes, antibiotics. For some reason, they're not called that. Yeah, they should be synonyms. They're not. Sorry, antibiotics. (laughs) Um, But people, you may not think of it that way. Like you said, as a a chemotherapy. Yep. I mean, so, I mean, the the chemotherapy, it's a little bit of a, it's, it's hyperbole, but it's true. Chemotherapy kills tumor cells. It also kills our cells, and that's why we feel terrible when we get it. And it, and the hope is that it kills the cancer faster than it kills us. It's poison with anti-cancer side effects. Mm-hmm. Antibacterials are the same way. They don't care if it's your healthy, normal flora that you got from your yogurt and your skim milk at breakfast this morning or for being swaddled by your mom after she changed your diaper. It's going to kill all the bacteria, and a lot of that bacteria is important. So if you've got bacteria that are making you sick and need to be killed, so be it. But just know that it's going to, it's not going to discriminate. And so don't think, you know, going in as a parent and I have three children as well, like that you don't need to take something with you. You don't need that prescription necessarily that you're, you really want to talk with your doctor. What, what do you recommend? What would you do? Have that more of a conversation? I think the question should be, does my child need an antibiotic? And if the answer is yes, great. Everyone's on the same page. And if the answer is no, I think the next question is, well, when might they need an antibiotic? If A, B, or C happens in the next 24 to 48 hours, do I come back? Are you going to call something in? What are you watching for? Because we're going to watch my child together and I want what's best for my child. Tell me what you're watching for so I can watch for it too. I think if we can get to that stage of dialogue, I think, and I think a lot of families do this already, but if we could get everyone to do it, I think that would help our prescribing patterns. And I remember I was surprised when I asked with the pediatrician, who's great, but was recommending antibiotics. And then I asked, is it okay? Can we wait on this though and see? And she was, you know, all on, she was on board with that. Maybe pleasantly surprised. Yes. (laughs) So may, you know, is that something you'd recommend too? I mean, just to show you're open to it. You don't necessarily need the antibiotics. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And one thing, a hundred percent. So parents can signal like, Hey, I, I'm not necessarily looking for an antibiotic. Is one indicated here? Oh, no, great, that's fantastic. I didn't want to deal with the side effects. When might one be indicated? When, when, when would we get there? The other thing that providers can do, and there's lots of evidence to support this, is how we frame the answer. If the answer is, it's a virus, there's nothing I can do, parents, don't, parents aren't going to like that. I wouldn't like that. I'm a parent. If you say, good news, it's a virus, we don't need to do antimicrobials. We can stay away from the antibiotics and their side effects. Here's what we can do. We're going to do nose drops. We're going to do supportive care. We're going to do Tylenol. He's going to feel better in 24, 48, 72 hours. If he's not, come back and call me. Come back and see me. We'll make another plan, right? And that's a much more, even though you said the same thing, that's a much more active management that families tend to respond better to. That's great. And it could turn into where down the road you might need the antibiotics. if it's Exactly. The, the last thing I'll say is most of the time when we study requests for antibiotic, we're studying it in that office scenario. Little Timmy is eight years old and he's got a runny nose and when are we going to do antibiotics? In my world, talking about babies, talking about pregnant women or new parents or a child who's been in the ICU, the neonatal ICU for maybe several weeks or months, we have no conception of what they want or what they understand about antibiotics. And I've been helping our center's been helping with a randomized control trial looking at situations where it might be safe to withhold antibiotics from very preterm babies babies who are 23 to 30 weeks gestation so one two three pound babies which again is a population historically we've always treated with antimicrobials 
and in, in, in talking with these families and giving them informed consent about what we're studying and whether or not they want their baby to participate, I've been really surprised by how many parents have said, oh, yes, we don't want our baby to get antibiotics. So if we can be in the study and maybe have a chance to avoid antibiotics, we're interested in that. And I, that's the outcome I want. But I'll be like, oh, really? That's mm-hmm. great. You know, I, I have been surprised by how many families seem to be aware of the possible dangers of antibiotics for their babies, more so than when I was, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago when I was a much, much younger, <laughs> younger doctor. Um, so it seems like that knowledge is starting to creep out there into the community. But at some point, if I can find the time and energy, I want to formally study that. I want to interview some families, interview some women, uh, some you know families who are pregnant, interview some families who've just had a baby, and get a sense about what is what is their knowledge, what is their expectation when it comes to antibiotics and babies. Dr. J.B. Canty with the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio and University Hospital. Thank you for being here on Pediatrics Now. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Pediatrics Now. Click on the link for free credit if you're a practitioner. You can also email us with questions or episode ideas. That address is pediatricsnow at uthscsa.edu. We release a new episode every Friday. I'm Holly Wayment. I hope you can join us for our next episode. Thanks for listening.